to me. Like, it's early. I can get on the 405. Is that Eddie? Oh, this is my old classmate from Southwestern. Hey, good to see you. Um, I'm the, uh, Professor Stanley Talbert here uh, at uh, Seaver College of Pepperdine University. It's good to see so many familiar faces. Good to see uh, my colleagues um, in the building as well. Um, just before we get started, can we just kind of yell out where we're coming from? Like, geographically? Yes. Yeah, geographically. <laughs> where did you travel from? Texas. What part? I'm from Texas. Okay. Rockwall, Fort Worth, Siegelville. Okay, some of us down the street. Okay. Washington. Great, great. Oklahoma. Okay. It's good to see everyone. I'm going to uh, be moving around. Um, today we're going to talk about love, justice, and hope, some theological perspectives. And basically, I, I want to just attend to the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And then we're going to ask some questions for our world today. A lot of times when people think about MLK or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, what speech comes to mind? I have a dream. What was the other part? Okay, see. Uh, so he's been popularized um, uh, for that dream. And... Um, but he has a lot more substance. He has more substance. He was a trained theologian, which means he got this uh, PhD in theology at the age of 26. And so we want to really engage him and take him seriously and not just as a footnote or as uh, an Instagram post or a Facebook quote post. Uh, but there's a lot that we can learn from this theologian who was not only a theologian um, locked in the academy, but someone who practiced theology in the real, real world as a minister, as a preacher, um, as one who sought to embody the love of God in the real world. And the challenge for us is to ask, what can we learn uh, from his life? What can we learn uh, from some of the thinkers that we're going to look at today? And how can we apply it in our own context? Does this sound good with everyone? Okay. So uh, there are, are two terms, and I'm, I really just kind of condensed them for this conversation. Maybe in other contexts, I might uh, define them um, a little differently, but I'm trained as a theologian, and that's the perspective that we'll be uh, coming um, at today. That's probably a little small, isn't it? It's Adobe, so they don't give me uh, choices on the, the font size. So theology, discourse, or speech about God, uh, God talk. That's why I love being a theologian, because God is the center. And then we can think about first, second, and third order theology, right? First, second, and third order theology. This is a way to think about uh, speech from God. So we can think about a prophetic call, right? Uh, Moses, you know, God speaks or appears to Moses through a theophany. Or we might think about uh, the appearance of God in Isaiah 6. So we can think about speech from God. But because we're finite and we're mere mortals, we don't have the privilege of accessing God on our own. So we hear from God through uh, divine revelation. Good to see Dr. Bulls. I see you all the way from New York. Amen. All right. He's taking notes. Amy. <laughs> Second order, uh, we might uh, say speech to God speech to God. Can anybody think about uh, forms or ways to think about speech to God? 
prayer. Great. That'd be one more example. Psalms. Prayer psalms like speech to God. And then third order of theology or discourse might be where we talk about God. Okay, so a lot of people talk about God. This happens, uh, my colleagues have probably affirmed this, like we might talk a lot about God, but do we talk to God or and are we listening to God? So um, those are different ways of thinking about theology. Then ethics, it's a t a Christian ethics is a type of ethics that's interested in conduct, goals, and forms of character, and uh, really asks the question, what should we do, right? So practices. When I was growing up, uh, which was when you were growing up, uh, we used to have these bracelets. I have really dry humor, so y'all have to laugh with me. We used to have these bracelets. Uh, what would Jesus do? Did anybody remember those bracelets? Well, that was an ethical question, right? And uh, we can turn that question as Christians, uh, what should we do? And theology and ethics, they should have a, a type of ecosystem that should flow. Uh, one of the theologians, James Cone, he really questioned the theology of, of many theologians in the United States based on the ethics and the praxis. So what you do. Um, some people say it's not about what you say, it's about what, what you do. Right? So um, these are the frameworks for which we'll be um, thinking through our lesson today. I like this quote um, from King's autobiography because um, it ties his uh, theology. We're going to talk about personalist theology briefly today. Um, and it centers on the God of love. And you can see how that love permeates and is cultivated in his family, right? Um, before it goes to the world and to the streets. It is quite easy for me to think of a what a God of love, mainly because I grew up in a family where love was central and where lovely relationships were ever present. It's quite easy for me to think of the universe as basically friendly, mainly because of my uplifting hereditary and environmental circumstances. So this is a really profound, just on a practical level, that uh, one of the greatest uh, theologians in the United States of America um, became that theologian because of the love that was cultivated in his home. He came from a Christian home, uh, but for many of us who worship with Christians, we know that there might not be love in those homes. <laughs> um, and so it's really profound that um, love was uh, cultivated in his home. And there's also um, a fact that King, when he was a child, he loved his family so much, his grandmother, he used to call her Big Mother, that he thought that one of his sins affected um, her uh, becoming sick, and he jumped off of the second floor of their house in Atlanta. And so, um, I mean, that's scary, but it does show you how seriously, as a, at a young age, as a boy, he took, you know, his actions and, you know, his commitment to love. And you might think about King and disregarding his family and thinking about a God of love. And you might think about uh, Minister Malcolm X, right, who took a different ideological approach uh, because his family was not like King's family. You know, his father um, was killed, murdered. Um, his family was split apart. And, you know, he went to prison, all of these different things. 
and really on a, just a very basic and practical level, the love that we cultivate in our homes means a lot. It could, it could just really shape the trajectory of one's life. But also his theology emerges from his house um, because he thought of God as a God of love. Let's move forward. The love that we see and uh, the love that a lot of people lift up in relation to King and why he's so quotable and, uh, was it, is Facebookable a word? Okay. Um, but that love is, is a love that is uh, drenched in the uh, catastrophe of life, right? So we're not talking about a love that's uh, situated in a vacuum or an idealistic type of love, romantic, romanticized type of love, but a love that's really tried and true. And in thinking about what King went through and our current context, um, what I would like to point to is love in the context of systemic or institutional racism. And one of the things that um, James Cone, the theologian, would say is that when we do theology, the theology should speak to the context of Sitzum Laban. Paul Tillich um, would also speak of situational theology, that you do theology in relation to the situation. What good is it to talk about the God of love if that love can't be applied to a world that needs it, right? So this is a definition for a systemic or institutional racism from the Institutional Equity and Diversity um, at Princeton University, which says, uh, systemic racism is a form of racism that is embedded as normal practice within society or an organization. It involves policies, practices, structures, and norms that result in inequitable outcomes for people of color. Systemic racism cannot be reduced to individual prejudice and cannot be effectively addressed by focusing on the values or conduct of individual people. Right? Somebody said amen. So I want to ask um, if you were to put this uh, lofty definition in your own words, um, how would you um, frame it? Or maybe one thing that stands out uh, to, uh, to you in terms of this definition. That's really good. So uh, basically it's not just focused on an individual's moral actions, right? Uh, but it focuses on a system that we might participate in. Very good. I remember seeing you at the 6.30 breakfast last year. Did you make it this year? I didn't make it. <laughs> You're tired right now, right? <laughs> yeah, anyone else, maybe uh, another person, uh, what do you hear or see this definition? Thank you. What resonates? I, I appreciate that response. What, what was your name? Dan, nice to meet you, Dan. And you're coming from Montgomery, did you say? Oh, very nice, very nice. I've been there on multiple occasions to have family in Montgomery. Um, what, what I want to say about uh, this, this quote is that with, so racism is one form of, of, of violence or system of violence, right? We talked about gender violence. We talked about other forms of violence, right? Um, and yes, it is a system, but it also takes people to perpetuate that system, right? 
And so a lot of times um, people want to blame, okay, it's the system, right? Or, or we just say, oh, it's the individual. But it's both. It's both. So uh, the way that I approach, when I think about ethics, I think about, you know, um, individual moral and ethics. Also, um, you know, when it comes to institutions or state, you know, we, can, we can talk about all three levels. That's what Niebuhr does. We'll look at him shortly. But also, um, you know, if we just blame the institution or the system, then where's the personal responsibility? So there can be personal and institutional responsibility. Can we say that? It doesn't have to be a debate. A lot of times we get polarized on the debate. So one of the questions we might, how can God's love persist in a world of hate? And this is the world, and I'm showing these graphic images because this is the world in which King, you know, talked about nonviolence. This is the world where he talked about loving God. That's powerful to me, right? This is, if we were to make an analogy and think about the time in which Jesus lived, Jesus lived in a very violent uh, Roman Empire. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which was predicated on um, violence. The nation started in violence. It had to be maintained in violence. And then you have someone to come on the scene talking about love, right? That's, that's radical love. That's real love. And that's the love that we're talking about. And you really can't get to, get to that level if we ignore what's happening in our world, okay? And let me just use this example from a North American perspective, right? In the United States, even as an African-American, there are a lot of privileges that I experience that other people don't experience. And so I have to be open to, you know, um, how am I contributing and what, how, what is my responsibility to the rest of the world as well? Does that make sense? And so just because something may not affect our household today or hasn't affected our household as Christians, shouldn't we be concerned about the least of these? I didn't mean to preach this morning. I preach, I'm also a preacher, so um, I preach on Sundays. <laughs> Not on, what, what's today? Tuesday? Wednesday? Oh, Wednesday. Yeah. So what does it mean to, to think about love in, in this context? Right? Oh, no. That was a problem with the documents. So what, what, is it, what does it mean to, you know, you stand up for justice, stand up for love, and you talk about hope? But in your own home, you have children, right? How many of you have children? I don't have any children. How many of y'all have children? Think about that. You know, my mother, uh, you know, she little chastised me when I was younger. But someone, like, messed with me, it was, it was over. <laughs> but think about that. Um, your spouse. And... At one point in his career, uh, King was uh, stabbed. He made the comment, if I would have sneezed or, you know, it would have been like, how do you continue with love? How do you center love in that context? In our world today, we we have a, a lot of different forms of hatred. And I think the question, you know, the question I try to ask myself when, you know, Things become polarized, and when things hit the, it's like, okay, uh, what is God calling me to do in this moment? I don't want to just jump to a side, but I, I want to be on God's side. 
And when we look at the Hebrew prophets, um, the Hebrew prophets, there were some good theologians because they thought about the love and the justice of God and they applied it to other nations. But they, are, they had some self-criticism. And I feel like um, if we're talking about real love, real love requires self-criticism, not only on the individual level, but on the institutional level, right? Is, the, is a church, are we doing what we're supposed to do in our world today? Are we embodying the love, this, this real agape type of love in our world today? Our institutions are our nation, right? And it's, sometimes it's difficult to have self-criticism, especially when it comes to the nation because of the love of the nation. But I like some of my greatest thinkers that says, I am critical because I love this nation, right? So the self-criticism that we see of Israel, of Judah, right, uh, the northern and southern um, kingdom from the prophets, that's a sign of love, right? Getting my exercise walking back and forth. If there are any questions as we go along, please feel free to, you know, if you have a thought, or just, you know, a question, please feel free. I want to take us to the letter from um, a Birmingham jail. Dr. Littlefield, I know you teach this one in your class as well, so please feel free to uh, jump here in any as well. So how many of us have read this letter before or heard of it? Yes. And can you tell us maybe one thing, one or two things about this letter? Just anything that you remember. It's difficult what? To wake. To wait. It's hard to wait. So this critique of gradualism, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So these, you know, a lot, when I first read this letter, I was thinking that this letter was addressed to, you know, um, uh, I would just say the Antichrist. <laughs> but that, that wasn't the case. It was people who would say, I'm, I'm for you, king. Like, we're on the same side. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> Right, very good. So we know he um, writes this from a Birmingham jail. Um, and basically the, the context was King was, you know, messing up the, the carefully calculated process for justice. And he was being a disturber. He was disturbing the city. And I love this letter because it's deeply theological. It's scriptural, right? And many of us come from, uh, the Church of Christ, a Christian church, Disciples of Christ tradition, um, where there is a high view of Scripture. And ties this sense of being a disturber um, to that of, of the apostles, right? And under the context of Pax Ramona, you would have the peace of Rome, but it wasn't true peace, it was false peace or negative peace. The difference between true peace, positive peace, and negative peace is uh, negative peace is the absence of justice, okay? Positive peace is when justice is present. So um, you and your friend substitute that with your spouse. I don't like to, to give uh, spousal advice because I'm not very much, but... Um, you have a, a conversation, you have an argument, but you sweep it under the rug, okay? Smiling, having a good day. It's gone forever, right? Because you swept it under the rug. My friend said, no. <laughs> so it's not really until you deal with the issue, um, it's still a negative piece. And so 
uh, this is what King advocated positive peace, where you have the presence of justice. Okay, so peace within itself is not um, good, good enough. So in order to disrupt the negative peace, right, um, it can look unpeaceful so that you can get to the real peace. You can kind of think about it this way. Blessed are the peacekeepers. You know, the text says, blessed are the peace what? Makers. And sometimes you have to disturb the false peace or negative peace in order to make true peace. I'm going to read a few uh, blocks from a letter from a Birmingham jail. First block says, any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is what? Unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. So I want to take a moment to unpack that. And as usual, I like to ask you, what did you hear? What do you what did you what do you see with this first block? What resonates? Maybe what doesn't make sense? Let's kind of stay here for a second. Sure. So there's definitely a false sense of reality, right? And more than disturbing the false peace in the city, then uh, he's disturbing a false peace in relation to theology because he's deconstructing, right? Yes. I, and I like how you, uh, as a theologian, would uh, tie it back to God, right? This is exactly what we see King does in this letter. Anyone else? Yes. Okay. Let's get one more. I, I appreciate that um, Onyx ex expression, and the re I think the reason it's important to think about, you know, as as the New Testament talks about principalities and powers, right, um, and uh, systems, is because you can participate in a system that oppresses you without, you know, other people being in the room. So, for an example, one of my teachers would say that uh, the way that white supremacy can function, you don't have to have white people in the room for it to function. So that self-doubt and hate is a, is a, um, a part of that, right? Um, I want to go to the theological component here, and I have a definition um, of personalism. So really, King was trained as uh, a personalist a theologian out of Boston, okay? And this is from the Research and Education uh, Center at um, Stanford, the second largest quote, which says, central to King's approach to preaching and religion was a concept of a personal and knowable God, a personal and knowable God. So we can go back to his family where he thinks about a loving God that was cultivated. He wasn't a personalist coming out of the womb, but uh, he learned about God from his family. He learned about God from his church and about the love of God there. But from his theological studies, he's learning more about God. A king described God in his sermon living under the tensions of modern life as a personal God who's concerned about us, who is our father, who is our redeemer. Uh, personalism posits ultimate reality and value in personhood, uh, human as well as divine. So if you have this idea 
um, about God um, in relation to people, that you should honor everyone be, uh, because of their personhood and their relationship to God, who is the ultimate person. Um, we can see how that would influence this first line. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. But any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Why? Because you're warping the image that God created. You're warping that relationship as well. Now, when we think about segregation, um, Brother Freddie, you said separation, right? So I think King really shows us that there's a difference between segregation and separation. All right, what might that difference be? I think it's a power difference. Okay, so you can perhaps choose to uh, separate, but there is a segregator and those who are segregated against. Okay, so it's really showing the power. And how does that distort uh, how God created us? God created us all to be what? Equal, right? We're all brothers and sisters, right? And whenever we have a warped view of, of who we are as humans, we, we can become higher than we were supposed to be created or lower, okay? And so it gives the segregator a false sense of superiority, right? And the segregated a false sense of inferiority. So superiority is not where God wants us to be. Amen, somebody. And inferiority is another place. God wants to, us to all be equal. Okay, and this is really speaks to this larger vision that King had, which, which was the beloved community. This is why King didn't have a problem for advocating for those in Vietnam or the poor, because it wasn't just um, uh, black people in America that he cared about. He cared about everybody, everybody. Uh, Y'all right, can talk back to me, please. I know I got this. I, all right. About Are there any questions so far before we move forward or observations? Um, and I think it really resonates with this letter because King doesn't just stay on human law, right? He's discussing divine law. Um, and it, what the comment that you made about segregation not only being legal, it shows us how and why segregation is still here today, right? So even if we talk about I'm segregated from my culture um, when I'm coming to the space. That's a form of that. And I, I showed us Michelle Alexander. How many of you have heard of Michelle Alexander? Right. Legal scholar who wrote the new Jim Crow. And basically the thesis of that text is to show how um, you have slavery by another name, Douglas Blackman. So you have um, enslavement of African Americans, and then you have uh, vacancy laws. They're criminalized because they don't have jobs, so they must be stealing, right? But we can't get jobs. <laughs> and then you have mass, the growth of mass incarceration, right? And so even when I lived in New York, the school system there was really segregated. This is in 2000. What was it? You was there too, Upper West Side? You remember that article? And so it, it, it can be, it doesn't have to do anything with uh, the legal and as Christians, we should go beyond the law anyway, right? We shouldn't depend on uh, the nation. We should push the nation, but we shouldn't depend on the nation to tell us how to act or to show us how to act. Okay, we have about five more minutes. I could go on, but let's take uh, final questions, thoughts, and comments. Sorry, I mean, this y'all just, these points are like, woo, I, I didn't think about it that way. That's good. 
Yes. Sure, sure. Thank you for uh, mentioning Luke 4, 18, 19. I, I love that pastor. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. If you come back tomorrow, I know there are a lot of exciting classes and other teachers that you might want to experience. Um, so that's fine. I encourage you to do that. But tomorrow I will be bringing a treat. I'm going to bring one of the first um, African-American students from Pepperdine University, Sister Bernice Pitts, 95 years old, um, May 20th. And she's going to bring her husband's thesis that he wrote here. He was one of the first um, black professors in the religion uh, department. His name was Carol Pitts. And he wrote um, a thesis on uh, the Church of Christ and the civil rights. And she's going to bring it, the original one. And so... Um, she said, I want to go to Malibu. So I was like, okay, I'll pick you up tomorrow. So she'll be here with us. <laughs> Thank you all very much. God bless you.